Our scripture reading this afternoon comes from the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 16. Revelation 16, we'll read that entire chapter, and then we'll read a few verses from chapters 20 and 21. Revelation 16, verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. Then the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. They have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give Him glory. The fifth angel poured out His bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophets three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief, Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that is in Hebrew called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there never had been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of His wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. Now let's turn forward to Revelation 20. We'll start in verse 4, and we'll read through chapter 21, verse 8. Revelation 20, 
Revelation 20, verse 4, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And He who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And He also said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So far, the Word of God. As I'm sure you picked up from the reading and even more from what we just sang, we are uh, entering into unusual, uncomfortable territory as we search through the Word of God and focusing especially on that justice and equity of God, which is a, a topic we uh, are not generally comfortable with, nor nor should you be comfortable with, but one that certainly is a challenge for us as we 
search through the things of the Word of God. Uh, we do this every, every afternoon, every Sunday afternoon, using the rubric of the Heidelberg Catechism. And this afternoon we find ourselves in page 520 on Lord's Day 4 of the Heidelberg Catechism, which deals directly with this topic of the justice of God. There the question is, does not God do man an injustice by requiring in his law what man cannot do? No, for God so created man that he was able to do it. But man, at the instigation of the devil, in deliberate disobedience, robbed himself and all his descendants of these gifts. Will God allow such disobedience and apostasy to go unpunished? Certainly not. He is terribly angry with our original sin as well as our actual sins. Therefore, He will punish them by a just judgment, both now and eternally, as He has declared. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. But is God not also merciful? God is indeed merciful, but He is also just. His justice requires that sin committed against the Most High Majesty of God also be punished with the most severe, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. So far, the Heidelberg Catechism. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, this is now the third week that we've been hearing about and reading about and thinking about our sin. As we've been following the Catechism, opening up the Word of God, seeing where these things are written and, and, and what the Word of God tells us. And we've recognized these are hard truths. Hard truths to swallow, hard truths to, to dwell on, to think about. It's not an easy thing for us to recognize and confess our sin. Now, as Christians, especially as Reformed Christians, we're we're somewhat used to the fact that we have to do this. We we have to confess that we're all sinners, and and we do that in a general sense fairly readily. We can confess, I'm a sinner, Um, we're all sinners. Um, And even outside of the church, most people, uh, even non-Christians, are able to admit that they're not perfect. That's, That's not that hard for most people to admit, but as we've been working through the Word of God, uh, we've, we've seen that God calls us to do what is, what is much more difficult, and that is to hear and to accept the words of God about the depth, the pervasiveness, and the seriousness of our sinful condition. The depth, the pervasiveness, and the seriousness of, of our sin. And so it's easy enough to admit in a general sense we're all sinners. It's much harder to accept that our sin reaches deep within us. It spreads in every part of our being, every part of our lives. And it is a serious problem before our righteous and holy God. That's what we've been trying to see as we're opening up the Word of God dealing with this topic. Now a moment ago we read from Revelation 16 and 21. Uh, and chapter 20 as well. And, and they give us a, a terrible picture of the wrath of God against sin. We'll come back to those texts in, in just a few minutes. I want to begin this afternoon just by thinking about what's our reaction 
when we hear or when we read a chapter like that? What's our reaction to that? Now, hopefully, uh, all of us respond with, with a sense of horror at, at reading uh, what we just read. Uh, there are terrible sufferings that we read about. Uh, and, and it's accurate. It, it, it paints us an accurate picture of the judgment of God. When God's judgment comes, it will be terrible beyond belief. Uh, there, there will be people, as, as we read, longing for death, desperate to die, screaming for the release that comes with death. And then there will be judgment, eternal judgment. Uh, Revelation 20, verse 10, The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Day and night. There, there's no end to the suffering of hell. So we do well to, to respond with a sense of horror, and I hope that, that we, we do respond with that. But as we read these texts, there's often another emotion in the mix. You can judge your own heart on this. Uh, and that is, that is anger. A, a tinge of anger or, or a sense of injustice that we hold out against God. Asking in our hearts the question, is God allowed to do this? Or even, how dare God do this? Well, what that emotion betrays, if it's there, what that emotion betrays is the belief that we do not deserve to be treated this way by God. All right? If there's anger against God when we read about God's judgments, it, it betrays the belief that we do not deserve to be treated by God like this. And to the degree, then, that we respond with that anger, uh, we, we betray this belief that we and perhaps nobody deserves to face this kind of judgment. Well, brothers and sisters, that's why we need to be here. Even as, as difficult as a topic like this is, uh, this is a reality of the condition of our hearts. Uh, we need to open up the Word of God to see our sin there for what it is and to recognize the just judgments of God. Uh, we may think that, you know, we already know that we're, we're sinners, uh, so we might ask, well, why do we need to spend several more weeks working through this to, to see that we're sinners? We already know that we're sinners. Uh, but the reality is that all of us, to some degree, do not yet understand the depth and the seriousness of our sin uh, before God. So we need to be here. This is also important given that next week we, we hope to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And to appreciate the Lord's Supper, uh, not only are, are we called to come with a clean conscience, having confessed our sins, but also to appreciate the Lord's Supper, we are to know what sins we've been delivered from. Uh, and so we, we do well, this is a reformed practice, to take the time to, to examine ourselves, to deal with our sin, to face the problems in our hearts as we come to the Lord's Supper, so we may do so uh, with the purpose that God intended for it. Uh, so I want to begin by, by di dissecting, as it were, the heart's reaction to hearing God's words speak about our sin. That's where the catechism uh, also takes us. Uh, when we're confronted by our sin, our heart responds in specific ways. And I want to point out four uh, specific ways, four things we do. Uh, perhaps we, we do uh, uh, one of the four, or more likely we do all four of them simultaneously. The first is we ignore our sin. God speaks, we ignore this happens. Uh, it, it's simply, I'm not going to listen. 
I don't want to hear it. If God's going to speak, I don't hear it. Uh, and and this is, this is the, the foundational creed of the agnostic, right? The, the man who says, uh, I don't know whether God exists, which is not saying, you know, I don't know. I'd like to know. It's saying, I do not know. I will not know. That's the creed of the agnostic. Um, it, it cannot be known, and I refuse to know it. It's ignoring the voice of God. I don't want it. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to talk about it. Uh, if we read God's Word, I will tune out to it. If I'm in the church and I hear sermons about, about my sin, I, I, I will wait till they're over, and then I'll listen again. If someone in, in the church wants to talk to me about my sin, I'm going to tell them the Bible says don't judge. And I'm going to condemn it as hate speech. And I might even get, it, get, get legal uh, action at play. I'm going to get it silenced uh, because I don't want to hear it. Now, we probably don't respond to that degree. And yet that response is there in our hearts. As God speaks, sometimes this is what keeps us from doing our, our personal devotions. We don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear God judge me uh, and, and deal with my sin. Uh, Paul talks about this in Romans 1, verse 18, where he says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's ignoring. It's, it's saying, I don't want to hear it. That's the first reaction of our hearts. The second is we deny our sin. So if we can't ignore it, we deny it. Uh, either we deny it outright, no, I didn't do that, it didn't happen like that, God, you're wrong. Or we, we tell ourselves a, a modified story of the truth. Now you know you, you've all done this, and if you haven't, uh, you, you've seen your children do it, and, and that should be an indication that you have done it. Uh, how, many, how many of you as, as parents have had your children, uh, for example, one child runs upstairs and, and says, Mom, she hit me. You all know the question you're going to ask. Why did she hit you? What happened right before that? There's a, there's a selective story being told here. Uh, we as parents, we immediately know to ask these questions. What's, what's the, you're, you're telling me some details. You're not telling me all the details in this story and, and it betrays how the human heart deals with uncomfortable truths. Our skill in, in denying uh, the truth is profoundly and powerfully deceiving. Uh, we, we fixate on facts that we want to remember, and we build walls around facts that we don't want to remember. Uh, and, and an amazingly, incredibly one-sided story develops from a long-term pattern of, of doing this. And we remember all of our good intentions. We don't remember or never wanted to see in the first place our evil intentions. And so we create a narrative in our minds, a version of the truth that becomes our truth in which we say we will now live. If you've, if you've ever seen a conflict developing between two people, you, you know what this, this looks like. Each one has a long list of the offenses of the other party, and a very short list of their own offenses. It's a selected version of the truth. And, and each one of them is absolutely convinced that their selection is an accurate representation of the whole story. It's, it's how we deceive ourselves. And we do the same before God. We say, I don't remember all these offenses. Or I didn't think they were all that great. Um, and, and I remember all these mitigating circumstances as well. It's a selected version of the truth. 
Uh, this sometimes also takes the form of, of minimizing. It's a form of, uh, of, uh, of denial. Uh, an example is uh, there was a serial killer um, several years back uh, who was interviewed about dozens of, of rapes and murders that he committed. And, and the way he explained them was it was a series of lapses in judgment. A series of lapses in judgment. That's minimizing uh, our sin. It's saying these are mistakes, but they weren't really sins. It's minimizing our sin. But our sins are not just mistakes. That's being dishonest. It's, it's denying what really goes on at the level of our heart. The, the evil that exists within us that led us to do these things in the first place. This is where God's Word calls us to be honest uh, with, with the condition of our hearts. Uh, so, if we're not ignoring our sin, we're denying and minimizing it. We're creating a narrative in our minds that ignores the uncomfortable truths and holds on to the ones uh, that we want. Uh, and, and, and we come away with the conviction that as a human race, we're really not all that bad. My selection of the truth shows that we're really not, not so bad as, as sinners. Despite the, the obvious facts of human history, uh, the, the cruelty, the evil that has existed in every generation that tells us as loudly as possible, no, the human condition is very, very desperate. And so it's, it's amazing that, but perhaps not surprising, that we find in our culture so many people that are shocked by the Christian message that we are that, that the human race is is sinful, uh, so many people that believe that we are basically good at heart, and and God would not condemn us. Where does that come from? It is a selected version of reality, a process of ignoring and denying and, and minimizing, and and this this process becomes twice as powerful as potent when we can get others to join us in it. Uh, this, is, this is something you see in, in many places in, in Scripture as well. If we can find one or two others to join us in throwing rotten tomatoes, as it were, at the preacher uh, and, and telling him, you know, stop being such a judgmental hypocrite. Uh, you sin too. It's not a big deal. Uh, if we can find more people to join us, the, the denial feels twice as powerful. It feels twice as correct, even though obviously that doesn't make it any more correct. Uh, so there's an incident in Luke 16 uh, where this is on display. The Lord Jesus is there preaching about the love of money. And the, hip- uh, the, the Pharisees, they, they, feel, uh, they feel convicted about it. Uh, they recognize he's talking about them. And it says so. They knew that he was referring to them. Uh, and so it says in Luke 16, verse 14, The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. So they got together and they ridiculed. Now it's not hard to find fellow sinners who will join you in ridiculing the truth of God. It's very simple and it's very comforting. So the message is, look, it's five against one. We took a vote and we decided you're just a judgmental hypocrite. Your words don't matter. We don't deserve hell. And by the way, this is hate speech. We decided. It's comforting but it does you no good. And that's what the Lord Jesus says to them in, in Luke 16. The next verse, he tells them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. And think about what the Lord Jesus is saying. You're justifying yourselves, not before God, 
which is the only place that matters, you're justifying yourselves before men, before each other, because it's comforting, it's reassuring, but it will do you no good. So he says, uh, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. It doesn't matter how many people you can find on your team. Uh, truth is not a democracy. We don't vote in or out what is true. Uh, as Romans 11 says, Let God be true, and every man a liar. And so if we come here to justify ourselves, we come here in vain. We are here to hear the words of God and humble ourselves before them. Thirdly, we also excuse our sin. This is a third reaction of the heart. And what that means is we provide mitigating circumstances uh, that, that make our sin understandable and therefore also more acceptable. Uh, so, for example, we say, uh, yes, I sinned, but if you understood what I was going through, you would understand why I did what I did. It's excusing our sin. Or, yes, I sinned, but my circumstances justify my sin. So, so we point to something in our circumstances, whether it's the afflictions we're experiencing, maybe even at the hands of other people, or, or trials or stresses we're going through, and we're saying, this is why I sin. Um, so it's not entirely my fault. It's, it's, also, uh, it's also the fault of others. Or, yes, I lost my temper, sure, but you know, I was having a bad day, and I was hungry too. It's excusing our sin. And we do this before God as well. Uh, when, we, when we see our sin in God's Word, and we recognize the ugly picture that God presents of our sin, uh, we excuse it. Uh, we say, yeah, but Adam and Eve sinned first. I was born into this. We excuse it, as if that makes us better. Uh, my, my circumstances, uh, we might say, allow me. Uh, they, they justify some of my sin. Uh, God hasn't given me an easy life. So, what do you expect? That's excusing our sin. And, and one specific um, way of excusing is when we blame. Uh, we blame others for our sin. It's a, it's a special form of excusing. And it's making the argument, my sin is someone else's fault. My sin is someone else's fault. Uh, yes, I can be impatient with my children, uh, but they're not easy children. My sin is their fault. Uh, and, and this takes a this takes hundred different forms, but all of them involve laying part or all of the blame for our sins at someone else's feet. Uh, yes, I committed adultery, but you know she's not an easy wife. It's her fault that I sinned. Uh, and, and this was the reaction of Adam and Eve when they fell into sin. Uh, we saw this la uh, last time as well when God asked Adam, Did you eat of the fruit that I commanded you not to eat? And what was Adam's answer? Well, the woman, the woman that you gave me, that's, that's why I ate the fruit. It, it was her doing. Uh, so Adam blamed Eve. And while we're on this point, take a moment to think about the evil that is at play when we blame others for, for our sin. Uh, for example, here, here with Adam and Eve. Uh, it, it, it comes so naturally to us to blame others uh, that, that, that we, we forget how utterly evil it really is. So Adam, the man who was created to be the protector and the provider for his wife, by blaming her, what was he suggesting to God? He was suggesting, God, 
instead of punishing me, you should take this woman. You should punish her. Send her into hell because it's really her fault. Uh, it, so by he, he's saving his own skin by handing over his wife to the judgment of God. And that's the evil in blaming. Every time we pass the blame, we're not only excusing ourselves, we're also making an offer to God. Take that person instead. You can have my children. They're the ones who caused me to sin, right? Uh, I, I lost my temper because they're difficult children. What were we saying to God? God, you take the children. Uh, leave me off the hook. Uh, take their life. Let them be responsible. Or you can have that brother or that sister in the church. Take them. Leave me off the hook. I lost my temper because of what they, they did. So God, just take them. Send them to hell and I'll go free. That's what blaming is. And we do this all the time. It comes instinctively to us to do this. Uh, There's a deep, almost irresistible impulse. And you you experience this. You feel it yourselves. Uh, Something comes on you, and, and you immediately feel the impulse, how can I blame someone else for what I've done? Uh, and, and oftentimes we don't give a thought to, what if God actually took us up on that suggestion? What if God said, okay, I'll, I'll, take, I'll take the offer you're making. I'll take them, cast them into hell so you can go free. That's what blaming is. And you notice actually in, in Adam's answer when he says, the woman you gave me, Adam's also blaming someone else here, right? He's blaming God. The woman you gave me. God, this is actually your fault for giving me this defective woman. This is, this is your fault not mine, you, Adam is suggesting to God, you should go to hell instead of me. That's what the blaming is. Saying, God, if anyone needs to go to hell here, it's the one who gave me this defective woman, not me. That's what the blaming is. Uh, All of these reactions then, this uh, ignoring, denying, excusing, blaming, uh, they make it impossible, apart from the Holy Spirit's work, to accept and hear, to hear and accept the words of God uh, regarding our sin. Uh, we read Revelation 16 and 21, and, and, and we're rightly horrified by it. But if we feel that tinge of anger, it's because we, uh, we still have work to do in hearing the words of God regarding our sin, to accept them for what they are. Uh, if, if there's anything in us that says, God, how dare you? Or God, is that right for you to do this uh, to, to, to us? Or do we really deserve that kind of judgment? Uh, that is, it, it is at its heart shaking our fists at God and saying, God, I don't deserve this. God, you are wrong. And if that's our final word, then we are lost. If that's our final word before the throne of God, uh, as we step into eternity, we're lost. God's courtroom, uh, there's no appeals court in in God's throne room. His word is the last word. We can shake our fists, but his word will still be the last word. And that's also what we need to recognize then from these these two passages in Revelation 16 and, and, and 21. Those who go to hell and face the wrath of God never repent from it. They never repent 
for their sins. Uh, so in Revelation 16, verse 4, it says, The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water saying, Just are you, O holy one, who was and is, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you've given them blood to drink. It's what they deserve. The angels, as they see the judgment carried out, they're saying, Just and righteous are you, O God. And again in verse 7, I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord, the God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. But what about those who enter into hell? In verse 8, the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun. It was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat. And what did they do? They cursed the name of God who had the power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. There's no repentance uh, in hell. Uh, Verse 10, The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. Uh, Once more, again in verse 21, Great hailstones, about a hundred pounds each, fell from heaven on the people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. Those who go to hell, who face the wrath of God, never repent. They spend the rest of eternity still shaking their fists at God, plugging their ears, refusing to hear His judgments and saying, God, you are wrong. I do not deserve this. You may not do this. How dare you? And there are many reasons why hell is eternal. It's it's eternal, as the Catechism says, because the punishment for sin, sin committed against the most high majesty of God, deserves the most extreme punishment, eternal wrath. But surely, this is another reason why hell is eternal, because no one in hell ever repents. They spend, because they would not hear the words of God here on earth, They spend the rest of eternity refusing to hear the words of God, shaking their fists at Him and saying, How dare you? There's there's only one way that people will ever come to repentance, and that's if it's given to them by the Holy Spirit, by the grace of God. By ourselves, we do not repent on our own. And so, it's a horrible thought It's a terrible scene to imagine people standing before the throne of God and hearing the judgment pronounced uh, to be dragged away into an eternity of hell. It's also a revealing thought experiment. If that was you, in that moment, does your heart then turn around, lash out against God, and say in those final moments, God, how dare you? If so... I'm not saying you're not a Christian, but you have, to, you, you have work to do then in understanding that your sin deserves the wrath of God. Not one of us may ever have that thought in our minds as we stand before God to say, I don't deserve the wrath of hell. God's word clearly says you do. And so while we are here on earth, hearing the words of God, while there is opportunity to repent, let us be a people that confess before God, like the angels do there in heaven, just and righteous are you, O God, for we have been given, or or your judgments are, what we deserve. Uh, That's the confession of the angels. And... uh, 
And, and that's the confession, then, that ought to be ours as well. That's the confession on which the gospel stands, in fact. And that's why the, the catechism starts here, dealing with our sin, so that we may stand on that ground and say, I deserve whatever God's judgment may have been against me. It's a, it's a hard confession to make, to say even to God, God, if you were to condemn me into hell right now for all my sins and to leave me there forever, it would be nothing more than what I deserve. But that's the confession that we must make if we are to understand the gospel and all that it means. To say, God, you would be within your rights if you were to take me and cast me into hell. It's nothing more than I deserve. You owe me no mercy. Uh, God doesn't owe us any grace. And God would do us no wrong if he were to cast us into hell. And that's the confession of, of David in Psalm 51 as well. Most of you know this, this story. Uh, and it's a revealing story uh, where, where God shows David his sin of murder. And, and if you know the story, uh, God did it in, in somewhat of a subtle, creative way. Uh, he, he sent the prophet Nathan to tell this story about a man who, who killed his neighbor's lamb. Uh, and, and it's worth pointing out, killing a lamb... Uh, even if it's a treasured lamb, uh, a close pet, as it was in this case, is still less than the sin of killing another person. And so the story goes to David uh, that, that, uh, that this man had, had stolen and slaughtered his neighbor's only lamb. Well, why did God tell the story that way? Well, I think because otherwise, if God had gone directly to David and said, you committed this sin of murder, what would David's reaction have been? would have been to ignore, to deny, to excuse, or to blame. But instead, God goes to David with this story to bring out the truth of God's justice that was already there written on David's heart, and for even a lesser case than that of David's. Uh, where David sees this man, this, this fictitious man who stole this lamb and slaughtered it, and he says, in his own words, that man is worthy of death. Then God brings the point home. You are that man. And that's what we do, isn't it? The justice of God is written on our hearts. And, and we know what's wrong when other people commit it. When other people sin, we are very, very capable of, of pointing out exactly what that sin is. There's not a soul among us who, who doesn't know what sin is. Uh, indeed, there, uh, when, when we think of something like the Holocaust, for example, there's not a soul among us who doesn't know that that was evil and that those responsible are worthy of the judgment of God. Uh, most of us, I'm sure probably all of us, would, would hand Hitler over personally if we needed to, uh, to, to send him off into hell. We get that that sin deserves God's judgment. Uh, you see the same things even in jails, uh, that criminals have this sort of moral code by which they operate where their sins are not so serious, but you put a rapist or a child abuser in, the, in that prison and they will be severely punished by their fellow prisoners. Why? Because everyone among them knows that other people's sins are worthy of death, just not their own sins. Uh, that, that justice that God has written on our hearts becomes a perverted justice when it's turned against ourselves. We gladly accuse others. We readily excuse ourselves. 
Uh, Paul talks about this in Romans 2, uh, where he says, You have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you who judge practice the very same things. That's what we see in the story of David as well. Uh, God brought out of him, while he was talking about someone else's sin, God brought out the confession of the truth, that man is worthy of death, and only then was he allowed to see, you are that man. And that's how you get Psalm 51. It's a, it's a familiar psalm to us. It's the psalm where David confesses his sin. And particularly important in that psalm are the words of David where he says, and, and this is verse 3 from Psalm 51, he says to God, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that, think of how, how this parallels the words of the angels in Revelation 16. He says, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Or again in verse 14 of that psalm, he says, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. There he names the sin. Deliver me from blood guiltiness. There's no ignoring, denying, excusing, or blaming left. He owns his sin. There's only a desperate fleeing to God for his salvation. And that's where we want to end this afternoon as well. We must confess the fullness of our sins. We must make that confession that the angels also make. Just and righteous and holy are you, O God. Your judgments are perfect. And you would do no wrong to us were you to cast us there into hell as well. But then by God's grace... We who confess our sins may run to the same God who calls us to confess. We may also run to Him because by His mercy, though He didn't owe us anything at all, so great is His love that He sent Jesus Christ to die for sinners like us to bear that punishment that we deserve so that we may spend eternity with Him in heaven. Uh, By God's grace, Christ has taken the sin of all those who belong to Him and nailed them to the cross so that it may be said, paid in full. That debt is paid and gone. So that sinners like you and me might not only only escape the judgment of God in hell, but also be able to know God again, to love God again, and to live in eternity with God in 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 a fellowship and joy that, that, is un, that is mind-boggling, uh, that is unimaginable to this present fallen world. So brothers and sisters, and also if there are any guests in our midst today who do not know Christ, turn to Christ. Run to Christ. While you still have breath in your lungs, confess your sins. Acknowledge the right, true, just judgments of God and then turn to that same God for mercy because he is also merciful. Confess your sins then, confess the righteousness of God, and cry out to God for mercy. Uh, the Lord Jesus tells us in John 7, verse 37, if anyone thirsts, and there he is speaking of thirsting for eternal life, knowing, uh, knowing how, how, how little reason there is that you should have it. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And he promises us, all whom the Father gives to me 
will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Those are the words of a faithful Savior. Uh, we've heard this from John as well as we've been working through the letter of John. In, in 1 John 1, if we say we have no sin, there's that ignoring or that denying. We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In Him we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous One, and He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So brothers and sisters, run for all your worth to that faithful, just advocate. Put all your hope in Him and hold nothing back, not in the deepest recesses of your heart. Hold back no denials, no excuses, no blaming, but confess your sins, holding nothing back because you can know for sure that His promises and His mercies are true and sure. And in Him is all the righteousness and all the salvation you will ever need to pass through the judgment of God into eternal life. All whom the Father gives to Him will come to Him. Whoever comes to Him, He will never cast out. Amen.